suspension. <laughs> I figured you needed to push it to the floor so you have the right. anyone else decides what they're going to speak on but um, for me it usually starts with a scripture or something that I'm reading and sort of catches my attention or convicts me and I sort of shoot off from there and I started this one because of what I was reading in the 14th chapter of Mark where Jesus is arrested and he's standing before the council with Caiaphas the high priest and the whole Sanhedrin and of course the whole trial is, is a mockery and you've heard before all the things that were violated by having the trial of Jesus, the way it was held, and when it was held, and where it was held, and all this sort of thing. But in in exasperation, Caiaphas finally says, Did I adjure you, or you, the son of the blessed? And they use the word blessed because the Jews are trying their best not to use the name of God in case they use the name of God in a profane way so they say are you the son of the blessed and Jesus says I am and he accuses him of blasphemy and they rip their clothes and all this sort of stuff and so I was sitting there thinking they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy because he said I am because he's claiming to be divine. So Jesus says, I am, and they say you're not. And they're accusing him of blasphemy. And I don't know of any better definition of blasphemy than for Jesus to say, I am, and for people to say you're not. Hmm. And it's scary. It scares me, and it ought to scare every one of us. There may be some better definitions of blasphemy, but that sure comes awful close. And so basically everybody that says, Jesus, you're not, that's blasphemy. And if we look at a definition of blasphemy, in the Old Testament, the concept of blasphemy means to revile to utter a curse against, to spurn, to treat with contempt. In essence, in the Old Testament, to blaspheme is to speak of God with contempt or act in ways that show that our views of God are irrelevant to our life, that he's meaningless 
to us in the way we live. The New Testament words for blasphemy have to do with slander or to speak lightly of the sacred. It indicates really a hostile attitude toward God. Swearing might be one category of blasphemy because it treats God's name lightly in a contemptuous manner. But it's more than just a casual curse. It's apparent really in Scripture that um, one reason unbelievers hold the Lord in contempt is because of the actions of those that claim to believe. Romans 2.24, Paul speaking to the Jews, he says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So blasphemy is desecration of the holy character of God. In a sense, it's the opposite of praise. You know, the first commandment tells us who we are to worship. No other gods. The second commandment tells us how we are to worship. No graven images. No idols. And the third commandment tells us in what manner we're to worship. And central to the third commandment is respect for the name of God. And the third commandment says, You shall take, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And we take the name of the Lord in vain anytime we abuse his name by making a vow of something that's false. And when we do this, we're calling the God of truth to witness our lives. We take his name in vain when we make frivolous vows. And we take his name in vain when we make a vow calling on anything else to be a witness other than God. People say, you know, I swear by my mother's grave. I swear by my ancestors. And it's taking the name of the Lord in vain. We're setting up something else as a standard of truth and calling it to be our witness when God is the only standard of truth. He's the only one that can bear witness to the truth in our heart. But taking God's name in vain has more to do with just vows. Anytime we use that name of God in a derisive manner. Anytime we insult or profane his name through an irrelevant, irrelevant, or irreverent, excuse me, way of speaking, or we treat his name as if it means nothing, we're taking his name in vain. Well, we make a profession of faith but we don't act like it in the way we live we're taking the name of the Lord in vain and that's something that hits home for me so often James says that when we do that our religion 
is vain. We take God's name in vain when we make promises to God and break the promises. We don't consider it a big deal when we worship God with our mouths but not with our hearts. When we make false promises. When we proclaim Christ but we continue to embrace iniquity in our heart. But scripture says God will not hold us guiltless. Probably the most widely broken commandment today, and not just in the world, but in the church. Taking the Lord's name in vain means using God's name in a futile or a trivial way, in a flippant manner, The command says God will not hold us guiltless. You remember the very first thing Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer. He says that God's name is to be hallowed. It's to be regarded as holy. You know, as Christians, we have to be very careful when we tell other people things like, I believe the Lord is telling you that. Fill in the blank. We might even be these words for good, but if we're putting false words in the mouth of God, we're making him a liar and it's taking the Lord's name in vain. We better be very careful when we use words like that talking to other people. Leviticus 24.16 we're told whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? We might not like those words And we might not put blasphemers to death today, but God says in the third commandment that he will not hold him guiltless. That means there's a price to be paid for dishonoring God. And if we look at that whole section of scripture, just a few verses that that last verse we read came from in Numbers 24, excuse me, in Leviticus 24, verses 16, 10 through 16, reads like this. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shemaleth, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who has cursed outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and then let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, 
If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So here you've got a man. His mother is an Israelite. His father is an Egyptian. And when they were in Egypt, he was probably reviled and ridiculed because the Egyptians didn't consider the Israelites equals by any stretch of the imagination. And now they're in the wilderness and the Israelites are probably reviling him too because he's not a full-blooded Jew. His father is an Egyptian. So he gets in a fight with a Jew in the middle of the camp. In the middle of the camp where the Ark of the Covenant is. And he blasphemes the name of God and curses. You know, every misuse of God's name is a serious sin. But not every misuse results in the same penalty. It's just like first degree murder gives you a different penalty than manslaughter, accidental killing. And so you see this, the same way applies to blasphemy. The problem here that makes it so heinous, so very serious, is cursing the name of the Lord where it happened. In this case, Shalemeth cursed God in the very midst of the community where God is dwelling. He cursed God in a location close to the most holy place. And he showed a profound hardness of heart. And faced with this horror, Moses asked God what he's supposed to do. And God says, stone him. And if we look at this, we see the punishment. And we say, isn't that kind of excessive? And if we say that, what we're really saying in our heart, or what we're really showing is that God takes his glory and honor more seriously than we do. In 2 Samuel, the second chapter, we read about Eli the priest and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were also priests. But these two sons of Eli did all kinds of evil things before the Lord. And they brought contempt on the name of the Lord to the whole community. The scripture says they are worthless or were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Here are priests of God that don't know the Lord that are doing all sorts of foul things and profaning the name of God because of their actions. The Lord said, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. 
So God brought disaster on Eli, and he brought disaster on Eli's son. He brought disaster on the son because their wicked ways dishonored God's name. They dishonored God's character in the sight of the people. And he brought disaster on Eli because he didn't do anything to stop his sons from the evil they were committing. God said that Eli honored his sons above him. That's calls for sobriety in us too. That we honor our children above God. The third commandment in essence orders us not to associate our creator with wickedness or to invoke his name in a trivial manner. If you read about Eli's sons, they did both of these things. And they reaped eternal consequences because of it. If you go to Second Peter, we see the association of blasphemy with false prophets and teachers. In Second Peter, the second chapter, the first three verses read, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as they will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Because of false teachers, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The immoral behavior of these false prophets, the immoral immoral behavior of these that claim to be Christian, will cause Christ to be reviled. In a very similar way, Jude says much the same thing. And people are unsure of whether Jude copied Peter or Peter copied Jude. But regardless, Jude verse 10 and talking about judgment on false teachers says, But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. These false teachers blaspheming the name of God. In both of these passages in Second Peter and in Jude, the false teachers are said to be, be blaspheming the glorious ones. And these false teachers that are opposed by Peter appear to have done this by disregarding the power and influence of demonic spirits. Because that's the, 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 
the essence of what he's talking about in the chapter. And it seems like the false teacher in Jude faced that the teachers that Jude faced blasphemed by trying to rebuke demons on their own authority. So unlike Michael the archangel, who called upon the Lord to rebuke Satan, these false teachers blasphemed by regarding things closely identified with God too lightly. Even though they were fallen angels, they were still to be regarded as much more powerful than themselves and not to be rebuked in their own authority. They might have been fallen angels, but they were once holy and still powerful. And evidently these false teachers mocked the power of the devil and demons, a flippant attitude that could lead to great danger. But probably the scariest thing in Scripture is to see how the Jewish leadership accused Jesus of blasphemy. In the second chapter of Mark, the first 12 verses, they describe or the section described a paralyzed man that's brought to Jesus and lowered through the roof of the house because it's so crowded they can't get in any other way. Jesus tells the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Now you've got a lot of Jewish leaders there, scribes and other people, because they keep getting sent to where Jesus is so that they can report back and tell what's going on and so that they can gather evidence against him. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now this is a great shock to the scribes because they know that only God can forgive sin. Because that's what it says in Isaiah. Isaiah 43.25 says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So Jesus knows what they're thinking, that only God can forgive sins, and that the penalty for a man claiming to be able to do that was an insult to God, and the end result is stoning. Jesus also knew that they linked sin and sickness together. A sick man was a man who had sinned. So Jesus looked at them. He asked them, what's easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Take up your bed and walk. You know, any pretender can say your sins are forgiven. And there's no way to prove it one way or another. No way to check it out. But to say get up and walk and you can get instant 
proof of whether what he says is true or not. You can verify it immediately. So in effect, Jesus is saying, you say that I have no right to forgive sin. You say that if this man is a sinner, he cannot be saved. He cannot be cured until he's forgiven. Okay? Watch this. Jesus spoke, and the man was cured. So what did the experts in the law do with this startling miracle? The man was cured, therefore he must be forgiven. Jesus' claim to forgive sins must be true. Yet later events show that instead of believing, they only plotted his death. They did this because Jesus claimed rights and powers that belong to God alone. And because they refused to acknowledge him to be the Son of God, he was charged with a religious crime of blasphemy. The final charge occurs in the 14th chapter of Mark where I started to begin with when Jesus was arrested and standing before the Jewish council. The false witnesses made accusations against Jesus but they couldn't get their testimonies to agree with one another. In the 14th chapter of Mark Starting in verse 53, it says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false statements against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists. 
and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. The book of Deuteronomy is basically a brief look at the last about a month, about a month period in which Israel is on the brink of going into the promised land. And they get they get this instruction in Deuteronomy 16, 8 through 20. You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. And you shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Just to look at one thing here, instead of all the ways that the trial was illegal, you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, and perverts the words of the righteous. You know, it's hard to find witnesses for a trial that takes place at 3 o'clock in the morning, in the middle of the night, in a place that it's not supposed to be. The council had to bribe some people to get them to do this. And usually, if you're going to bribe people to say lies, and their testimony has to agree, you're going to have to spend some time together to get your story straight. But when you've only got an hour or so to get this done before daylight, they didn't have time to get together and get their stories to agree. And so, one said one thing, and another said another. And so, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, there was no agreement. So they, so these bribed people could not agree, and so their testimony was worthless. Now listen to what it also says in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 19.16, it says, If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly and if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. What he's saying is that if a man accuses someone 
falsely of a crime, whatever the penalty for that crime that the man would have received if he was guilty goes to the false witness. So if someone accuses a man falsely of murder and it's determined that it's a false accusation, then the false witness receives the penalty of murder. So that's what happens in the original law of Moses, which these people claim to adhere to. So it's pretty serious to go in the court and be a false witness. Because the penalty of death was the verdict, or if that was the the penalty for the false for the with for the uh, accused, and it turned out to be false, then that's what the false witness would get. But the greatest horror is that Jesus is condemned for blasphemy by the high priest, as the scripture says, and they all condemned him as deserving death. So Jesus is condemned for claiming to be divine when Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin are the blasphemous ones because Jesus is the Messiah. He is God. He's the one that sits at the right hand of God and he's the coming king and the coming judge. They all condemned him to be deserving of death. It was unanimous. These are all the religious leaders. Essentially, 24 chief priests, 24 elders, 24 scribes, and a high priest. This is a Supreme Court. These are the religious leaders. John Calvin says in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, We ought to be so disposed in mind and speech that we neither think nor say anything concerning God and his mysteries without reverence and much soberness, that in estimating his works we conceive nothing but what is honorable to him. You know, in our culture, it's easy to fall into the trap of speaking about God irreverently. We take God's name in vain anytime we speak about him improperly. Nobody wants to be like the Sanhedrin. Nobody wants to be like the high priest Caiaphas. But if we reject Jesus, that's what we're doing. We blaspheme the name of God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm aware that distorting your scripture is distorting the truth of God and is a serious thing. And I pray that anything that I've said, Lord, would just not be remembered and you would forgive me for distorting it and looking at it in a wrong manner. And I just pray that we would take it very seriously that you regard your name as holy. 
and that it's not just what we say with our mouth, but our actions that go along with our words. And I pray that you would give us a new insight and a new understanding and a new way of thinking so that we regard your name as holy and not be guilty of saying something that you will not regard lightly. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.